0: I dedicate this talk to all our parents, all of our teachers, and all those beings who are striving on this path of enlightenment, this path of growing noble in truth, in what awakens and uplifts us, and especially to these three young women They are. (laughs) 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 Wonderful Dhamma warriors who have for years, many years, been striving and seeking the way to uplift their hearts and are now going a step further. More than 1,600 and ten years since the Bhikkhuni Order moved from Sri Lanka to China, and more than a thousand years since the Bhikkhuni Order disappeared from Sri Lanka. that this Bhikkhuni ordination is being re-established in our modern age. So it's a great delight to be on the crest of this wave. Remember our ancestors who came from Europe and England to pioneer in America and Canada. And what they had to go through, they came with nothing. I remember seeing a photograph It couldn't be a photograph, it was a sketch (laughs) of what the pioneers saw when they landed where we live in Canada. These very, very tall trees, thick like a wall. If you were standing below them, you would feel miniature, like a lily putton. (laughs) Did any of you really see Am I out of date (laughs) 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 here? What was the name of that book? Uh, Gulliver's, Gulliver's travel, travel. so <laughs> now we're at travellers, <laughs> Travels, pioneering to re-establish the fourfold Sangha in this country. So this is the second or third of these ordinations happening. And it's becoming more public and more normalized. So it's a cause for great celebration. But when you contemplate how much effort, how much renunciation, how much determination, how much courage, how much trust, how much aspiration, how much perseverance and endurance it requires to come to this point, that's awe-inspiring. It's a good example to all of us who are way-seeking what we have to do in life to fulfill this goal of the Eightfold Noble Path. It's not something that we can just fulfill by sitting with our eyes closed on a cushion. We also have to do that. Why do we have to do that? Why can't we just live our dream, aspire and fulfill it? Well, because for lifetimes we've been wandering lost in samsara. And we have only now begun to get the glimmerings, to break through the veils of our conditioning. But to really wake up, one has to break one's habits. And these habits go very deep, deep. So first we have to find the way then we have to point ourselves on that way then we have to determine that we're going to keep going even when we fall off fall off the way just set ourselves back on it and then we take precepts precepts are isn't it true people think that if you if you keep rules it's not popular <laughs> And it's not praised in our society. This is a detriment to human beings. Keeping precepts begins by externally being mindful and careful of how we act, how we treat each other, how we treat ourselves. But the real precept taking happens when we stop reciting the formula and we confront samsara, we confront the world and our habits, then we are tested to see how much the precepts are deeply pervading our minds, our beings, our hearts. If we just uh, recite them once a week, well, that's what the whole society does. Once a week there's a Sabbath day or there's a Sunday where you recite formulae or gather together in a temple or a church and recommit to holiness. And then the rest of the week, we find ourselves being careless. But to return to the precepts in our daily life, in how we speak to others, how we respond, how we write letters, how we shop, how we drive, how we walk, how we sit. In our hermitage, people come to visit and quite often they come because they want to get away from the insults of the world. Like coming here, it's kind of like a hideout. People come and they like just to meditate put in as many hours as they can. So specializing in concentration means that you're really good at keeping your mind one-pointed when you're sitting down with your eyes closed and everybody's absolutely quiet and the conditions are perfect. But then when we move to another posture and we leave the room, go out the door and return to our lives, what happens to our practice? the fourfold sangha is a restoration of the Buddha's model for a structure, for a sangha, for a community of enlightened ones walking a fully developed path. It's a symbol of four pillars of a house, or four corners of a vihara, a place where you can abide and live in safety. So it's not one pillar. It's not two, it's not even three, like a three-legged table isn't very stable, but it's four. It's like four foundations of mindfulness, of four body postures, sitting, walking, standing, lying down, to be mindful in all four postures, to practice in all four postures, not just in sitting. So I reflect, you know, when people come to the monastery and they they just want to sit, do a lot of sitting, seeing how that kind of mind state is not holistic, it's not full-grown, it's a specialty. And if you specialize, then you only develop one pillar of your vihara. A vihara means a place where you can Abide and dwell in safety. And here, where you have earthquakes, if your building has four pillars, four corners of foundation, then the house is more secure. And the inner house has to be well-rounded. The inner Vihara. If we have precepts, and if we have knowledge of... Different tools that we can use when we're speaking, when we're walking, when we're working, when we're going on a journey, when we're lying down, when we're getting up, when we're brushing our teeth. How to take this practice into daily life so that we're not just living by a formula. This practice doesn't evolve just by reciting formulae. I think about my own practice. When I went to Burma, 1987, I was so keen on the sitting practice. And uh, I went on retreat. I was due to take a position in the UN, working in Lubini. couldn't get a better job than working in Lubini. <laughs> but then I became a nun. And when my contract arrived in the post and the office people from the retreat center brought it and set it in front of me, I was in meditation. I heard this kerfuffle. No, but I, I didn't pay much attention. And then when I opened my eyes, there was a stack of papers there, and that was samsara, arrived <laughs> at my feet. So it was the contract for the child. And suddenly the whole memory came back to me. I was supposed to be going and working in Lumbini, but now I'm a nun. What I was doing was more important to deeply, with <clears throat> both feet on the path, not just both feet, my whole life, everything, the path became my Bihara. And then I went back to the West to live for a while at IMS, and then... Boulder Creek, California. Tangpulu Kabai Monastery. While I was practicing there, there was this wonderful Burmese monk who's now dead, Lime Te Saito. And I received a phone call from a friend of mine who said there was going to be a Bikuni ordination in Los Angeles. And I asked the abbot permission to go. He said, There's no such thing as a bhikkhuni. So I felt very embarrassed that I was asking to go and take part of something that these monks, who I deeply revered, said, that doesn't exist. You just go on practicing right meditation, okay? So eyes closed, back on the cushion, meditating, but inside my heart, I wanted to attend his ordination and then become a bikini. Nineteen years later that wish was fulfilled. I was already in robes, but it took another nineteen years before that actually came to pass. How many years have you been since ninety three? As an Anagarika ninety three? How long is that? <laughs>
1: Eight, <laughs> years.
0: Eight, Eight years. years. Eighteen Eight years. years. What going since 92. It was a, a since 95. Nineteen right. Right. Well, only years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so years. Uh, so, in England, living in community, at the monastery there was a completely different practice than just sitting on the cushion. <laughs> it's not just sitting still on your own terms in perfect conditions, watching your mind and experiencing beautiful mind states or whatever you experience when you concentrate and meditate and get some peace in your heart. But when you have to live with a group of people you end up grinding together. Imagine if we were all locked up in this house, (laughs) lock the doors, uh, stay here together for a few days, without the possibility of going and following our desires, our schedules, our entertainments, our distractions, and just following what Sister No. 30 and Sister Santa Chita ask you to do. It's all very nice for a couple of hours on a Friday evening, but what if we had to do this day in and day out? No walks on the beach, no whatever else that you like to do. Then it becomes very hard, sharing the space, obeying, having to listen to somebody else keeping many, many more precepts than just five precepts. Like eight precepts, once you're staying in the monastery, there's no supper, get up at 5 or 4.30, have meditation, then do chores, clean the bathroom, wash dishes, cook, etc., etc., help the sisters serve, serving, serving each other. Actually, community life, is about the richest, most difficult practice you can engage in. Because you have to make peace with people at very close range and see your own defilements reflected in them. Everyone becomes like a shiny mirror. Just look at this bit of yourself. (laughs) Now look at this bit of yourself. And eventually, you start off by having a small, silent tantrum in your heart, and it gets louder and louder and louder. Community life is like being in a pressure cooker. It's the most excellent practice, because we get to see ourselves exactly as we are. The heat is turned up, and there's nowhere for us to hide where to go. You can't distract in sorry activity. You just have to keep seeing how we really are. This is so valuable. But do we really want to see it? It's like a slow dying to our pretenses and our delusions. And that dying is very healthy if we can let go When I saw how much I had to learn in community, I thought, I need this. I really need this. This training is going to give me something that retreat cannot teach me. So I highly recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to stay, you're going to have to get the sisters a bigger monastery. (laughs) (laughs) There's not enough room right now. Picking up the practice in a more holistic way is very, very important for training. But you don't have to become a monk or a nun to do that. And some of you have children, you have families, partners, responsibilities, and you're also doing very wholesome work in the world. People sometimes come and ask in the monastery, they get worried because they think, what if everybody joined the monastery? (laughs) But that'll never happen. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I always say that uh, not everybody is going to be a dentist, (laughs) and not everyone is going to drive the shuttle bus, or be an engineer, or teach, or whatever. The same way. This is a profession, and there are very few people that are called to this particular profession. And if we didn't have you to feed us, we wouldn't be able to do this. So the Buddha, in his magnificent wisdom, established a system of reciprocity based on an economy of gifts, a generosity of interchange spiritual dimension to the material dimension, that means that we're always grounded in the world. We can't go off and escape into the mountains. We can't stay in Burma on retreat. We have to come back to the world and see what kind of Dhamma wings do we really have. Because if we don't know how to live in the world, how to bring the teachings into daily life problems, We're just learning the teaching in a literal way. I remember in the early days, when we were very young nuns, we were just learning how to do this, how to live in community. This is all very new. This is only the last 30 or so years in the West, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And if somebody had a problem, quite often, you'd go to someone more senior and they would say, just watch your mind, just watch your mind. Well, that's that's a very flat way of talking to a human being who is suffering. We have to come from the heart. We have to speak to each other as human beings and use our precepts, but also the four foundations of mindfulness, which means understanding the truth of the teaching. Where does the suffering begin? It doesn't begin out there. If we're having a tantrum and we can remember I'm suffering or there is suffering, then at that moment I am not having a tantrum. We recognize that this is a process of mind. These are Difficult emotional states, but they're not what we are. Then we can get some perspective on our tantrum. And we're not going to sink. But if we believe that we are the mind, or we are the body, or that we are the tantrum, then we go down with it. And we keep recreating it. Not only that, we start projecting it outwards to other people. So at a moment when someone comes, instead of saying, just watch your mind, we try to sit with them and hold them in awareness of what they're feeling. Can you just feel what you're feeling? Often I will ask people to describe what they're feeling. I do this myself. I try to examine what am I feeling? Being aware of what the body is doing with the emotional outburst. Just feeling the heat, feeling the subtle sensations or the coarse sensations. When someone, especially women, might be crying, I ask them to breathe. Because if you're crying, you can't breathe. You can't cry and breathe. You want to try it? You can't. <laughs> You cannot cry and breathe at the same time. So if you just say to someone who's very upset, just take a breath, just to try to breathe. Your tears are rolling, just breathe. And breathe with them. That's empathy. You're really entering into their dukkha with them. You have the complete time to be together in dukkha. And if you can be together in suffering with someone, that's compassion. So compassion is to be able to sit with someone else's out of control, outburst, uh, state of protest, internal breakdown, and hold them in that so they don't completely fall apart, feel it with them. But because our minds are not in the same state as theirs, we can hold the space for them we create a little boundary, a beautiful space that allows them to just breathe into their pain. When they get the permission to breathe into it, it makes the space bigger. It diffuses the horror of it, the impossibility of it, the unbearability of it, and the vulnerability, the trembling, stills and stops. This is what happens when we see the first noble truth. It happens by connecting heart to heart. Let me be with your heart for a moment. Isn't that beautiful? Be with your heart for a moment. This is compassion. It contains in it the loving kindness that all of us can experience when compassion brings us to stillness. Because then we forgive the moment. And forgiving the moment is a practice of generosity. You have made time to stop for your pain and examine it. Are you finding the answers to the pain in the world? In the complexity of the world? No. This world runs on desire. It runs on delusion. It runs on hatred. And it runs. It doesn't stop doesn't stop. Monastic life goes in the opposite direction. It's a stopping. It's a stilling. It's a holding the space. That's very hard to do. But we must do it. Just like restoring this bhikkhuni pillar into the fourfold sun. But we must do it to stabilize the world. We must do this. It's a restoration of humanity. It's not a restoration of gender, of femininity. It's a restoration of humanity, of compassion and wisdom together. And we do this by simplifying to the most humane way of being with our pain and with our joy. To understand joy is also impermanent it comes eventually to a place of stillness and upekā, equanimity, where we're not desiring that things be joyful or painful. We want the middle. We want to go right down the middle and burn in that middle. That means we want the ego to burn. The ego is what always drives us away from pain and towards joy. But that's also diluted. Because we cannot hang on to the joy. The four pillars give us the stability. The Four Noble Truths give us the way from dukkha to understanding the way to end it. And that gives us a different kind of joy. It's an ease. It's an opening. It's a lovingness, a loving-kindness. It's a being present for, a holding each other. It's a burning the ego. How do you burn this ego? So subtle, so tricky, so powerful, that even we spend an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year on retreat, and then we walk out the door and we say and and do things that are unskillful. And we think in unskillful ways. If every person in this world could just train in the five precepts, not just the externals, but inside, to have the inner Vinaya. The internal Vinaya is one that requires the ego, to be burned. And that means a complete cessation of going in any direction whatsoever. It's not just having beautiful mind states or just being completely peaceful, but it's being able to live with acceptance, compassionate and altruistic way of meeting the world selflessly, we are all obsessed by our conditioning about this self. This body is made up of elements, earth element, water element, fire element, air element. Examine the elements in the body and know that these elements are bound together in this lump that has a name, we give it a name, and then we believe that's what we are. But we're not that. These elements are bound for death. And if we contemplate the dying of the elements, the returning of the elements, each to their elemental nature, earth to earth, water to water, fire to fire, air to air, or heat element to heat element, Air element, air element. Then who dies? What is it that's dying? Why are we so grief-stricken when we think about our our dying, or when someone dies? What are we grieving about? We have to ask ourselves these questions and examine if we're going to be able to take this journey to its end and fulfill our aspiration for the ending of suffering in the heart. We have to examine life and death, the whole journey from the time we are born and little tiny babes to the time we are all shriveled up or sick and fading away. We have to contemplate the bony structure, the skeleton lying there. Try this. What does it bring up in your mind when you contemplate yourself as a corpse? That's not who you are, is it? There we can see the deluded ways that we cling. And another thing that we can do is, just by watching the knowing of these things, we ask, well, who is knowing? Whatever the mind is able to know through the five sense doors. You see something? Oh, I see. You hear, I hear. You speak, I speak. You taste, you touch. You smell, I smell, I taste, I touch. Who is this I? And contemplate that. And find out, is there anybody there? Or is it just seeing, the process of seeing, the mental processes that come together when... A form contacts the sense field, the optic nerve, and there's consciousness of form. It's just seeing. But we believe that I see, and then we falsely believe that I get enlightened. But the ego never gets enlightened. So therefore, this understanding of death helps us to die to greed to die to hatred, to die to our delusion, instead of being dead people walking around this planet. We have to wake up from the dream to really understand what it is to be lifted up into Dhamma. We celebrate this Upasavada being lifted up into the restored fourfold sangha, by practicing that in our own lives, restoring ourselves to true awakening by unraveling the delusion of the way we hold on to our bodies and our consciousness, our ability to know our intelligence, our faculties, our gender identification, our age identification, All that, we have to see it for what it is, and let it all go. This is an enormous renunciation. But just like keeping precepts, when you first started taking the five precepts, maybe it felt awkward, and then you begin to realize it's a protection. Then we become so one-pointed that we develop an internal purity of heart. That isn't even a renunciation. It's just a total commitment to this path. Wherever you are in the world, you can do this. But also, we have to go even beyond this form. We have to go beyond the whole gender thing. To be a monastic, it's going beyond gender. We're not taking refuge in the body. When the Buddha was teaching bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, he would use the word bhikkhu. Just like when we talk about human beings, that includes men and women. So the word bhikkhu in Pali refers to both monks and nuns. You know, it's just grammatical. Plural form, male, female, all together, bhikkhu means one who is seen the dangers of samsara. All of us can be, Be bhikkhu. Don't worry about the grammar. Now, we're trying to restore something, so it's important to have all the different parts, but then when we transcend even that and go beyond language, take it a step further beyond language to the silence, when the body is gone, we're meditating, you don't even feel your body What is there in that consciousness? There is no form, no sound, no color, no taste, not physical. There's no perception. We go even beyond the body's ability to perceive in the sensory ways. But there is just a pure knowing. It's so pure. That pure knowing can take us beyond all conditioning. When we go beyond all conditions, then we have used this convention of bhikkhu and bikuni to fully awaken. Like the Buddha told us, we leave the wrath behind. We leave the form behind. We don't take any of it with us. Not the robes, not the body. None of it. Not even the most exalted mind state on a mundane level can take us to that state of the unconditioned. I think I better stop there. <laughs> i uh-huh.